Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Director of Science and Medicine at the Adelaide Crows, Steve Saunders. Tuning in to episode 252 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today is a really interesting chat with Steve Saunders. So Steve had over six years at North Melbourne Football Club in the AFL and has since uh, moved to the Adelaide Crows as their Director of Science and Medicine. So all within that, within his experience uh, in, in AFL, he's also done plenty of research, but also set up uh, Kangatech. So if you haven't heard of Kangatech, uh, Kangatech are a company which specialise in the measuring and training of isometric and eccentric uh, strength. So we discuss all them things, so working at AFL, but also the, the kind of business idea and how that's how that's blossomed into what it is today. But obviously given Steve's um, knowledge and experience with isometric testing and its kind of re-emergence as a popular uh, area of discussion. We do discuss a lot around isometric testing, why you might do it, where it fits, how Steve would prescribe it in a in a pre-season screen, in a daily screen, all that kind of thing, and where it fits in in rehab in the rehab setting as well. So, really interesting chat with Steve, which I'm sure you'll get tons and tons from. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics, the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can, I mean, you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident, which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMeasureU, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defense and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website, imeasureu.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. So without further ado, over to the episode with Steve Saunders. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this morning, I am delighted to welcome Director of Science and Medicine at Adelaide Crows, Steve Saunders. So welcome to the podcast, Steve. 
Good morning, Rob. Thank you very much for having me, mate. Thank you very much for giving up your time and coming on. So anyone that doesn't know who you are, we'll go through the standard procedure of what we do on the podcast and just give uh, ask the guests to go through their background, their education, and kind of a little bit of a backstory of how they've got to their current position. Sure, Rob. Yeah, I, um, I graduated in, from an undergraduate physiotherapy degree at the University of Sydney in 1987, and I, I had hair when I did that, and that's, uh, that's changed <laughs> rap- rapidly. Um, from that point of time, I worked as a clinician for quite some time until about 15 years ago. I found myself working in clinical medicine, obviously, and then consulting to a number of different sporting teams and took on a PhD at that stage, largely because of a strong interest in lumbar pelvic hip control, hamstring and groin issues. Um, And I was lucky enough to have Paul Hodges as my supervisor for that project. So I did that PhD through the University of Queensland, um, completed that in 2007. The primary area of interest was obviously lumbar pelvic control during bipedal human locomotion. So we we were really interested in what were the neuromotor strategies underlying control of the pelvis and spine during gait and how did they change with the change in motor locomotion and how did they change with speed? It was the first group of studies that ever used fine wire EMG to look at all layers of the deep and superficial abdominal and paraspinal muscles um, and to investigate those along with 3D motion of the spine and pelvis. And we used an inductance plethysmograph to look at respiration as well. So it was a pretty complex set of studies. Um, At the the time I undertook the PhD part-time, we had two young kids. My wife, uh, Tamara, was a very, very patient person and put up with me doing all of that while still working. So the PhD took the the better part of eight or nine years to actually finish. Um, And uh, then moving on from that, by the time I'd finished that sort of body of work, um, I was then asked to take on the high-performance role at the North Melbourne Football Club. So I'd been consulting to eight or nine different AFL clubs throughout the period that I was doing the actual research work and still working in clinical practice. And then jumped, jumped out of both of those, those worlds, really, to, to uh, dive into the world of AFL football and uh, take on that role at the North Melbourne Football Club, which was an, an absolute pleasure to do that. I did that for six years full-time. Then, for family reasons, moved back to Adelaide, South Australia from Melbourne and continued to do the performance role on a part-time basis for North Melbourne for another year to help transition that change. Spent uh, a year or so based in Adelaide consulting to overseas teams and uh, developing the injury prevention platform Kangatech a little bit further, which we developed during my tenure at North Melbourne Football Club. And then um, at the start of this football season, the Adelaide Crows Football Club, I was lucky enough to be approached by them and they asked me to take on a role as the Director of Science and Medicine at the Adelaide Football Club. And uh, so I'm currently balancing that and still doing um, some research and still consulting to a number of elite-level sporting teams around the world. Um, Those teams um, uh, are playing cricket and football, uh, sorry, AFL football, soccer, um, basketball, ice hockey, extreme sports, a whole, a whole range of interests there um, see me uh, pretty, pretty busy overseas as well as with the Crows. Excellent. What's it like doing the part-time, part-time PhD? Because that's serious work for eight or nine years. 
It's, it's really difficult because you build up so much momentum at, at certain times and then you feel pulled, pulled away from the body of work because it's just what it is. So the way I had to structure it was I would, I would um, organise data collection at the University of Queensland over a three-week period. I would set up all my subjects, study protocols. I'd fly into Queensland for three weeks. I'd collect data for three weeks. And then I'd fly back to Adelaide and I would analyse that data and and work on that for a six-month period or whatever. And then perhaps in that period, one or two times, have to go back to Queensland and get some assistance from, from Paul. Um, and, yeah, so you're sort of ebbing and flowing and toing and froing a little bit. It's pretty challenging, probably the most challenging professional thing I've ever done. But at the same time, so stimulating working with people who are um, leaders in their field, um, such clear thinkers, um, it was a it was a really wonderful but challenging experience. Mm-hmm. And something that's come up or coming up more and more in the couple of chats I've had with probably the more experienced guys or the people that have kind of come out of pro sport into this world, and that's consulting. What what's your structure in terms? Of, I know we can't obviously go into details of who you're working with and things, but are these are the, the people that you mentioned in the NBA and 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 uh, extreme sports and things? Are they ad hoc or are they? kind of regular kind of check-ins with these people? Is it for a specific project? How does that work? And the only reason I ask is because when people have brought it up before, there's there's been quite a discussion around, you know, where the industry is going in terms of consultants and how people get into it. So I just wanted to get a bit of a bit of detail from you in terms of that world that you've, you're still in. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I suppose if you look at, you know, for the for the six-year period I was at North, I did very little of it. I did just a little on the side from some interested parties that might want me to visit and do some PD for a couple of days once a year. Um, having left North has freed up a little bit of time uh, for me to do more consulting. And it, again, depending upon the team, that can range from doing some work for them on a weekly basis or an annual basis. A lot of the time, to be honest, in elite sport, um, you may not have much work with a team for four to six months and then they may they might strike a problem, they might have a run of groins or a run of hamstrings or something like that and you might be asked to call in and work pretty intensively with them initially for a two or three week period and then to support any sort of um, ongoing investigations or um, sort of changes in process over the next two or three months. So it, it's very, it can be highly structured or very random depending upon the group and depending upon the period and the problem. So it's very laissez-faire really, but it can also keep you very busy. Yeah, absolutely. So let's go on to Kangatek for a minute. Sure. Where did that come Where did that come from? And I'm, I'm really interested. We've had a couple of people on here who have, who have started businesses? Um, and the last one was uh, Carlos uh, Balsalabre, who did the uh, who did the, uh, the jump apps and the change direction apps and all that kind of thing. And I'm yeah, always interested where these where these kind of things come from and how they develop and how people actually build businesses through probably just a, a problem that they've come across. So where did Kangatech come from? Yeah, ours was ours was a very problem based, Rob. So I arrived basically from the world of clinical medicine and the laboratory at North Melbourne Football Club and really wanted to bring some science and some objectivity to the daily workings of a football club. And so I was looking for uh, valid and reliable measures of modifiable injury risk factors and performance indicators that had 
a high level of utility that I could use quickly and easily on a regular basis. So we started using a variety of field tests. We used real-time ultrasound. We used um, handheld dynamometry and we started bolting dynamometers to steel frames fixed to the floor. We were initially housing a lot of this data in the, in the, in the good old Excel pivot tables. And then we, we, we just started hitting roadblocks in terms of portability, in terms of versatility, in terms of software capabilities. And it was out of, the, out of the needs of a football club that we actually wrote the code for and started engineering Kanga Tech itself. And the early results for us and for some BD users were so impressive that we suddenly found ourselves with a business opportunity, really. It, was, it never started to be a business, but it's ended up being that. So what was that transition like from being something that you needed, wanted, it was for yourself, then transitioning that into a business? Because I'm, I, I mean, I've never been in that position in terms of the hardware stuff, but how difficult is that to make that transition and get the right people on board to be able to help you to do that? Yeah, correct. Look, it's a, it's a very challenging and difficult process and one that I couldn't have undertaken on my own clearly. I, I don't have the skill set to do anything like that. My My... Strength is the science and the clinical application of the science. We were, we were very lucky with Kangatech in that we had board members of the North Melbourne Football Club that were heavily interested in helping us develop the technology. We had a group called Biari Mathematics that are shareholders in Kangatech that had an extensive level of experience in writing code and software analytics and in building business models as well. Um, and we had some private benefactors on the board that had done things like this before. So without those sort of people involved, Kangatech could have never happened really. It's, it's been quite a, quite a complicated process, but with the right people around to support, one that's been very enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So just to give a bit of rundown what we're going to chat about um, for all those listening. So we're going to have a little chat about isometric training, then we're going to have a, a little chat about um, sports tech, where it's going, and then some, given that a lot of teams over here in Europe are going through pre-season periods, have a little chat about pre-season as well. So we'll just start with the isometric training side of things. It seems to be quite a topic of discussion um, on, on social media, and it seems to have a bit of a, a resurgence in, um, in interest and popularity. Why do, why, do you think, why do you think that is? And are we just kind of, do we go in, in cycles of these kind of things? Or is there a, um, like, like, like you say, a, a body of research that's kind of grown in this area? Um, why do you think there's, there is this resurgence and this um, increase in, or re-increase in, in popularity? Yeah, it's a, good, it's a good question, Rob. And certainly, certainly the pendulum swings. Um, it swings because it's human nature to explore something that we think is different, that, but that is probably been looked at before, but becomes a new flavour. There's certainly been a growing body of evidence around isometrics and people have gone to explore it more. Now, why people have explored it, I think, is probably twofold. Uh, I think it's come from the fact that over the journey for a long period of time, clinicians have found isometrics really useful in a number of ways. They've found that isometrics can modulate tendon pain. They've found that isometrics are a wonderful way to retrain motor control. They've found that isometrics are a great way to build muscle strength, to develop hypertrophy in a muscle. Um, and that as clinicians have pushed that barrow, so to speak, there's also been um, 
with the use of dynamometry, we've found it much easier to measure isometrics than we than we do isotonic exercise. The equipment required to measure isotonics is far more cumbersome and expensive. So the utility of isometric testing and training has also sort of fed the interest, I think. And then while those two things have been happening, this growing body of research has been saying, hey, you know, isometrics do change pain and they do change strength and they do build muscle and they do change muscle architecture. Um, and so people have developed a little more faith in isometrics. Um, and that's and that stretched some beliefs. You know, there's other people that have talked a lot about context specificity and the need to use eccentric exercise and to, in inverted commas, get functional. And all all of those, all of those areas of interest are important, and all of all of those um, training mechanisms are important as well. So it's not that you do any one at the exclusion of the other, but I think the interest in isometrics is growing because we're seeing more and more evidence. Um, to suggest that it has a strong place within all of those other things we just talked about. Mm -hmm. And another thing that's, that keeps coming up, um, and it can be in a number of contexts, of people putting themselves in an eccentric, I'm the eccentric guy, this is, this is what I believe in, um, I'm the isometric guy, this is what I believe in. And often when you speak to these people, the perception is that they are that, guy that eccentric guy or whether it be um like jack hickey and the guys at acu and it, and then they actually like well not really because we still believe in that stuff that's just happens to be the area of our research etc etc but where does and and just on that on that discussion in terms of the eccentric stuff what's your what's your view on on that that polarization of of the the, the group that you kind of fit in um is obviously it's a it's a holistic view of things and and you're going to use both at different times and it's all context driven yeah see and i mean the first time i was probably polarized through a body of research work was when i produced some papers that talked about the differential control of trunk muscles and we and we showed that deep and superficial trunk muscles are differentially activated during bipedal human locomotion they do different things and they're coordinated differently and what what the deep and superficial muscles do changes with speed and locomotion and it changes with respiratory demand and it changes with locomotor speed and it changes in the presence of pain and so because we then highlighted the fact that in general when people get lumbopelvic pain um, we see that associated with deficits in deep muscle activity and variable increases in superficial trunk muscle activity um, we then there's there's an extended body of research that's starting to show or that has shown that isolating deep muscles can help change the balance of deep muscle deficits in activity and superficial muscle overactivity. Now, in highlighting that, you know, isolation of deep muscles and training them in non-functional ways, people um, tend to want to polarise you and put you in that transverse abdominis, pelvic floor, uh, sort of re-education box. Um, at no stage would I ever suggest that, that they're the only aspects of trunk control that need to be assessed or retrained. And more to the point, it's about measuring paraspinal muscle endurance and abdominal strength and control and deep and deep muscle control. You need to measure all of these things if you want to assess someone's lumbopelvic control properly. Um, and so that's that's just one example of um, a finding in research polarizing you when it actually um, is only part of what you might do in the actual clinical setting. 
Um, it's probably no different in the isometric world now. So we've developed um, a, a means by which or a technology that lets you assess isometric strength and to train isometrically. It also lets you assess and train some, some muscles eccentrically and isotonically as well. But by no means do we think that the perfect injury prevention program or a sound gym program um, uh, contain only isometric or only eccentric exercises. I, I think it's about getting the balance of all of those loading tools right. So when it comes to the argument of the, the uh, context specificity, how do you kind of bat people away with, with that argument? Yeah, it's a good question. So probably one study that um, was a study that Henry Sayo completed at the University of Queensland after my gait study. So we showed during gait, for example, that people with a history of low back pain um, demonstrate periods of ipsilateral silence during foot strike or at foot strike during gait. So um, people without a history of chronic low back pain, they turn transverse abdominis on tonically. It's on all, all the time during gait. And the, the amplitude of activity of transverse abdominis is modulated at both the frequency of foot strike and the frequency of breathing, but it's turned on all the time. People with a history of back pain, we showed that transverse abdominis is silent for ipsilateral foot strike. Yep. So... One, one of the interesting things about that finding was, well, will it make a difference to these people with a history of recurrent low back pain if we actually retrain that? And can we retrain that? And how do we best retrain that? So Paul Hodges and Henry did a wonderful study back in 2007 that actually showed that you can lay people in crook lying and you can isolate a contraction of transverse abdominis and do three sets of 10, 10 second holds and show immediate changes in how that muscle is coordinated during both limb perturbation tasks and during gait straight away after one session. And with repeated training within two weeks, you can restore or improve the tonic activity of transverse abdominis during a functional activity in gait when the training you're actually doing is isometric isolation of transverse abdominis only in crook lying. So there's something about differentiating a muscle and recruiting it and reconnecting it with the nervous system if you want that you get out of non-functional practice that can't be gotten from functional practice. So the control group in Henry's study actually also did abdominal retraining, but they contracted all of the muscles of, of their abdominal wall to the same MVC doing the same volume of work, the same frequency of work over the same period. And those people didn't have restoration of tonic activity of transverse abdominis during gait and had no improvement in their back pain. So there's, if you just train them functionally, if you just walked them, or if you just did functional base exercises, it's not necessarily going to restore the differential activity of the deep muscles that's required for mitigation of back pain. Um. So in terms of isometric training in rehab, which is obviously something that you're extremely familiar with and something that we chatted about with, um, with Luke Jenkinson a couple of weeks ago on the podcast with his, um, with his thesis, and I've seen some of the work that's gone on at, down at Derby with Luke um, using Kangatech, but for, on, a, on a wider scale, on a wider kind of viewpoint, isometric training in rehab, just want to give us a bit of an overview of why you might 
use that modality and and when and how yeah sure so when you're in when you're in rehab the first thing you want to be able to do is profile an athlete and determine where their where deficits are that might predispose them to risk so if we just go back to sort of testing for example and we're looking at rehabilitating someone with an acl um uh, and we want to measure or profile hip strength, for example. There's, there's great value to be gained in isolating all planes of motion around the hip and determining whether or not they've got deficits in key areas. So, for example, we know ACL risk of injury is increased if you've got deficits in strength of hip abduction or hip external rotation. If we don't isolate those planes of motion, if we just test squat strength or, or leg press strength or um, deadlifting strength, we won't pick up those deficits if we don't isolate the planes of motion and test them. So there's value in using isometrics to isolate your planes of motion and test them really accurately. The same goes for retraining. If someone's got a deficit in control of a muscle, just doing a gross functional task doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to start activating that muscle. So when rehabilitating and trying to retrain motor control, the first step for me is to make sure you can get the person to isolate and activate the muscle. Once they can activate the muscle well and, and, and they know where that muscle is and they can fire that muscle well, you then want to develop capacity in the muscle and then you want to develop strength and then you want to develop power. So it's sort of like control, endurance, strength, power, if you like. And using isometric training, we can isolate that muscle. We've got good measures of control using the software now to determine when they're ready for progression to endurance training or to strength training or to, or to power training, for example. Um, and so isometrics let us determine what they need, but then help us grade the dose of that training a little more accurately i think now we always run a very conjugated model with this so while we're doing those sort of progressions with isometric training it's not to say we're not also adding eccentric biased exercises or general conditioning isotonic type exercises as well cool so how are you how are you able to um so what are the, what are the kind of measurements to, to progress um when it comes to um Isometric exercises, the percentage of MVC that you're progressing to a certain point at which it, it's going to give you an indication of that you can progress to the next stage? Yes, sure. Like, a, like I said, we run a very conjugated model, but with isometric training, we will normally start people, for example, once, once they're recruiting a muscle well without pain, we normally like to see them develop a certain level of submaximal strength endurance. And normally that involves them being able to contract the muscle at 30 to 35% MVC for multiple repetitions between 10 to 30 seconds. And that might, that might be two by six by, um, or three by six by 10 second reps held for between, uh, or 10 second reps held at 30 to 35% MVC. Um, the, the interesting thing we've found about that particular submaximal strength endurance threshold is that we've seen a number of people with groin or hamstring strength who are, for example, in terms of isometric hamstring strength, able, able to pull 65 kilos isometrically in mid-range. They may be able to pull 550, 600 newtons on an eccentric Nordic drop. 
And then when we've checked strength endurance capacities and we've taken them back to 30% of their maximum and asked them to do repeated 10-second holds, two sets of six 10-second holds, um, they're not even two-thirds of the way through their first set um, and they're shaking like a leaf, feeling extreme fatigue within the muscle. So getting a gauge as to not just strength but also strength endurance or for want of a better word, control endurance is an important part of our profiling of all athletes and, and plays a part in us deciding when they're ready to move into um, work in the gym or on the field that will increase fatigue or metabolic stress. So has there been any case studies on that in the, the have, on, I'm, you, I'm sure you've got you've got plenty from your from your time um over there but is there any good cases that, that's actually led with them protocols to like specific successes in terms of like reintroduction to to performance or reduction in in injuries i'm sure there's tons out there dozens dozens so on the on the on the on the team level we've seen you know just just following these basic assessment and sort of implementation protocols we've had dozens of teams see um, significant changes in soft tissue injury rate in their first year so anywhere between 50 and 95 percent reductions in soft tissue injury rates in their first year but i think the more powerful things are the case studies and for me as a clinician the more powerful things are the case studies when you basically brought an athlete who's in inverted commas tried everything else but his groin's still no good or he keeps breaking down or his hamstring still keeps happening. And you do a full profile on the person. You're able to establish that, hey, you know, in this actual person, his eccentric hamstring strength is really good but his fatigability is poor, his strength endurance is poor. Or his hamstring strength and endurance might actually be very good but he's got real proximal weakness around the hip. And one of the, one of, one of the patterns we're seeing in groups with recurrent hamstring injury strain in AFL is they're showing pretty consistent deficits in hip flexion, abduction, and external rotation strength. So they've got proximal strength deficits. Some of these, there's this definite subgroup of people whose hamstring strength and conditioning is pretty sound, but they've got proximal hip strength deficits that need to be attended to. And so as as luck or fortune would have it, often they're the ones that might find their way to me or to us because um, they're the ones in whom training just eccentric hamstring strength alone wasn't going to be enough for, and they've continued to break down. They've found their way to us. We've been able to profile the hip a little bit better and deal with some deficits there. And we've had athletes who have averaged 10 to 11 AFL games a year for multiple years um, go go through a rehabilitation period during an off-season and come out and play all bar one game the following season. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Steve. Hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, we discuss the buying process when it comes to technology. And obviously Steve's got plenty of experience being on the business side of that, but also on the practitioner side of that. What people do well, what people miss in that decision-making process. Also, um, a lot around the pre-season preparation, given here in the UK, um, we're coming to the end of pre-season now with, with football and rugby, but getting his insights into where isometric and eccentric training training and testing fit in that pre-season preparation and then also a little bit around uh, asymmetries given this the um the metrics that kangatech and other technologies out there um, now measure but just before we do get into part two with steve i want to say a big thanks to fatigue science for sponsoring this episode today 
So Fatigue Science have exclusive access of the SAFT model, which is an algorithm developed by the US Army. And if you listen to my episode with Ian Dunican, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So the SAFT model analyzes uh, a number of different factors in your sleep history to predict your fatigue for the day ahead. So the alertness score indicates fatigue predicted effects on your reaction time, your lapse index, your mental output, all, all things that are obviously essential for the performance that you're gonna undertake that day. So as you can tell, it is much more than a sleep tracking device. However, it is a sleep tracking device, but not only does it track sleep, um, it considers the time you went to sleep, how well you slept, how much sleep debt you have, and even your local sunrise and sunset times. So a really impressive bit of kit is the ready band from Fatigue Science. So if you are interested in getting to know a little bit more about Fatigue Science, head over to their website, uh, fatiguesigns.com but also follow them on Twitter at Fatigue Science. Also sponsoring the Pacey Performance podcast today is Omega Wave. So Omega Wave is an, the only non-invasive at rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train for both the brain and cardiac analysis. So using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy levels and autonomic nervous system balance it allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize training and then optimize performance. Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position and this data can be used by the medical practitioner to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. So this measurement only takes four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to their windows of trainability concept. So Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sport, military and law enforcement agencies and are now the official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. So if you want to learn more about Omega Wave, visit their website, which is omegawave.com and on their social media channels. Uh, so my, next, my next question comes from um, the, the conversation that I had with Luke a few, a few weeks ago and just moving away from the you know, rehab side of things. Um, coming to the kind of strength and power performance um, side, he he uses um, the isometric um, modality for in youths when maybe technique is an issue, um, and obviously running again running them side by side. But is there any other benefits or places that you've seen isometrics work really well in away from that rehab setting? Oh, look, it's sort of a standard for us. It's not. Um... It's not only in the rehab setting, you know, if we have a young 17-year-old athlete come in and we're looking at his quarter squat or his hop landing profile and his flexion adduction internal rotation pattern is terrible or he's not adducting and internally rotating the femur much but he's got a very stiff leg landing and there's no eccentric control of knee flexion. So let's, let's just say it's a young athlete with an aberrant landing or single-legged squat pattern that we think puts his knee in hip and increased injury risk. So sometimes what I've seen happen with athletes like that is some of the foundational strength work that might be given might be double leg squatting, for example. And while I have nothing against double leg squats, it's unlikely to retrain that that particular pattern in a, in, a, in a lot of those athletes. You need to, if you're going to be doing squatting, you need to shift them to single leg squatting to get higher levels of activation of the hip abductors and external rotators. But the problem there is that you may profile them around the hip and actually find out that while glute max is very strong, 
the hip abductors and external rotators and perhaps even the external rotators once the hip is flexed are terribly weak and put vertically in the gravitational field they do not have the capacity to perform the movement well so all they're going to train is a bad pattern of movement because they have insufficient capacity. So you've got to reduce the degrees of freedom of the task. You've got to give them an opportunity to recruit the muscle well and develop some capacity and to then do versions of the task um, with correct technique. And there's, there's a variety of different ways to do that and there's lots of very smart clinicians out there that have a lot of really cool, funky ways to do that. But one of the foundations to um, to simplifying the task to make it easier so they can do it technically well one of the foundations to that is just giving them the grunt and capacity and the muscle to actually perform the task in the first place does that make sense yeah absolutely and very similar on the same lines what what luke described that's that's fantastic so just moving on we're coming to the half hour point I'd just like to move on to um the, the kind of global sports tech market and just to ask you obviously you've got you've got kanga tech um run alongside your your nine to five and there's obviously plenty going on there but where is where where's innovation coming from in, in sports technology from your point of view what you're seeing out there from a um from a business um owner point of view but also from a, a practitioner where do you think we're going where do you think we are and where do you think we're going next with sports tech well it's sort of um it's sort of quite exciting what's happening because there's New technology is being developed all the time, but if I put my director of science and medicine or my high performance hat on, you've also got to be very careful about being swamped by the technologies and being a bit bamboozled by the potential opportunity because it's not just about collecting data. It's got to be relevant data. It's got to change what you do. It's got to engage the players and the staff, and it's got to change outcomes. So while there's a lot of things hitting the market, you've got to be so so careful about what what you implement and how. Um, there seems to be a lot of techs coming out that are coming purely from the laboratory and they might be talking about measuring particular parameters that you use or particular things that you think I'm, I'm not sure much, I'm not sure how much that's going to help my sport or my athletes. Um, there might be other techs that are, that are coming out from less less from the laboratory and more from the business world, um, they're even more of a concern. If it's someone just basically trying to make money out of selling a tech to sports with big budgets in inverted commas, some, some, some of those techs can be something of a concern. The best techs are the ones that are coming from that sort of collaborative interplay between scientists and technicians in the field. Um, they're the techs that I think are offering most to elite sports at the moment, and they're the techs that most teams are tending to turn to. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you've you've gone through this next process that I'm going to mention um, on the almost on the other side and the, the the practitioner side. But in terms of going through the process of buying technology, what would you recommend? How how, how would you recommend people go about it? The checklist that needs to be kind of gone run through before anyone even talks about numbers and can we actually afford to get this um what's the checklist that you'd run through personally for for sports tech oh wow gee that would be an extensive yeah. checklist wouldn't it um, i think there's some basic questions to ask rob and probably the first thing i would sit down if i'm considering a new tech or let, let's say i'm not continue not considering a specific tech but i'm wondering what area we should be looking at next um, I would tend to pull together the coaches, 
and the high performance staff and the medical staff and sit down and have a bit of a workshop session and say, what are our pain points? What's really hurting us? What's killing us at the moment? What would be, I hate to use the term, but what would be a game changer for us? Where is our group at right now? And what would be a game changer for us? So there's that acute need thing. And some people might say, look, if we could just manage patella tendons better because we're a basketball team and we've got all these patella tendons and we're losing X amount of training time, X amount of games, and four of those players are big ticket players and it's just killed us. And so patella tendons might be the point of focus, yeah? Um, so you look at that acute need at the moment. What are the real needs? What's, what's preventing us from being elite? That's really, really important. Um, but then you've got to take that longer um, overarching view as well and think, well, okay, we've got these acute needs, but where's the sport going? Where do we want to be as a, as a performance team or as a medical team in five years' time? And what sort of technologies do we need to work towards with regards to that? And you might take a slower approach in terms of sort of fulfilling some of those needs. Do you think that people are good at going through that initial no. process of okay? No. <laughs> no, people, people, people get really reactive. And look, I've, I've come into teams at Kangatech uh, for Kangatech, and they've got me in and said, "Well, look, we've heard about your tech. Come in and give a presentation." And so you come in and you you start giving a presentation. You get about twenty minutes in, and they're all look. To be honest. They all love the story and they love the science behind it and they love the accuracy and the reliability and the validity validity and the potential to measure 45 different things and to be able to measure um, three things on 45 athletes every week within 45 minutes and have automated reports sent out. And they get really excited and they love all of that, yeah? But at that point in time, I tend to sort of just stop the presentation and Nine times out of ten, it just tur- turns into a needs workshop, and it turns into. But, but, but what's going to be a game changer for this ice hockey team, or what's going to be, what's going to make the difference for your list where it's at right now? Um, and then you start creating some really good conversations about. Okay, what's the epidemiology of your list? How many of these injuries have you had? When have they tended to occur? What are the profiles of most of the athletes? Well, we've profiled these things. Have you thought of measuring this? No, we've never measured that. Here's an opportunity because this is a better indicator than the one you're using and maybe if we do this, we might get a better outcome in terms of preventing that type of injury. Like I think, I think the needs analysis is really important um, and, it, and, it, and it's something that really should be done before you jump into a tech. I'm guessing that from a practitioner point of view, with so many options available, with players moving between clubs and bringing ideas and the, the um, obviously social media being a big part of it, lots of information available, readily available, people's fingertips and the phones, even including players getting influenced by people, uh-huh. by things, by agents, all that kind of stuff. It, make, it puts a lot of pressure on of what we should – buy what we should be even looking to invest in i'm guessing that's a really kind of murky ground for, for a practitioner with all these different influences been been thrown towards them and actually having to decipher and make not only make a decision that's kind of scientifically robust but almost like pleasing people who have got the power the players or the management who have been influenced that's a minefield yeah look look it is because you 
sort of in a situation where you're thinking, well, okay, I'm going to spend all this money, I better get it right. And then you're sort of thinking, well, are the players going to be sensitive about having things measured on them? Will, will they be defensive in, in that it might affect their next contract if they measure poorly? Or is it actually going to be able to be um, presented to the athletes and the coaches as a means by which to determine the upside of an athlete, which is often the case with good profiling of athletes? We've, we've had literally dozens of cases of profiling athletes and being able to say to a coaching group or performance group, um, there's that much upside in this athlete in these areas that he's a steal. Um, so that's, that's really important too. And then the other thing for the clinician is the fear that the technology is going to become onerous and take more of their time because they're all already flat out as it is, you know. So the really important thing about the tech, all, all tech's got a learning curve, yeah, but it's got to be a very short one. It's got to be really user-friendly and it's got to actually save the clinicians and the athletes' time. And that's one of the things we've been really careful with in terms of developing the Kangatech software in that we've been able to walk in and do demonstrations for groups and literally sit them down on the tech and hand them a tablet and say, set yourself a test for hip abduction and shoulder external rotation. And they're able to work their way through the tablet and do it. And now, I'm not sure if you've uh, seen it at Derby, but it, it, it's sort of such a user-friendly tech that athletes will walk in, pick up the tablet, hit their name, see their four isometric variations of exercises they have to do today as part of their total gym program and just get them done and then integrate those into their gym program. So whereas we used to have to um, watch that more closely and we were unsure as to whether or not it was being done with the same level of control, um, it's now done quickly and easily without supervision, with automated reporting. It's actually saving people time, which is really important. Excellent. So moving on to the third and final point, and this is very um, a lot of chat over here because rugby and football are going through their pre-season period. And I just want to touch on some, some screening protocols and maybe we'll cover some of the stuff we've already, we've already gone through as well. But in terms of your, your screening protocols that you would use um, – you know, whichever, whichever team you're with, I guess. Um, just want to give us a bit of a detail around what you guys do and maybe why you do it and maybe some some mistakes you've learnt along the way, some things that have been binned, some things that have been brought in, just a bit of an overview of, of, of the, the protocols that you'd use in a, in a pre-season screen. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, a, it's obviously really got to be specific to the sport and we apply some filters to the depth of the screen based on the initial musculoskeletal profile of the athlete. So nothing, nothing's probably more important initially than a really good musculoskeletal screen from top to bottom of the athlete to determine if there's any, any hip impingement issues or there's any subclinical tendon issues you don't know about or there's joint hypermobility you didn't know about. All those sort of basic things are really important. Is there a lack of hip range of motion? Is there a lack of ankle range of motion? What's their foot type? All, all, all those basic things, they're, they're, they're still very relevant and very important, I think, um, to get a sound understanding as to the musculoskeletal health of the athlete. Once you move beyond that, you then specific to the sport and that particular profile, you might really want to drill down on a particular area. So in the world of AFL, sort of lumbo-pelvic hip-thigh area is really, really important. And we do really detailed screening of both strength and endurance 
and control of those regions. So around the hip, for example, in AFL players, we will measure MVIC, maximum voluntary isometric strength of hip flexion, extension, abduction, adduction, internal rotation at zero and 90, external rotation at zero and 90. Um, and we'll pair out strength at hip strength of hip external rotation at zero and 90 so that we can get an idea as to what the external rotation strength is like as the hip flexes and pair out differences in strength associated with changes in functional muscles like posterior glute med and piriformis that change from being external rotators at neutral to being internal rotators at flex in flexion for example so by the time we've got a full hip profile of the athlete in terms of hip strength then we've got some idea as to where they're weak and where there where there may be some risk. Um, sorry, Rob, I'm just uh, just being interrupted here. Um, Stay, mate. Once once we've got that, um, we then might look at fatigability of particular muscle groups, and we'll correlate those sort of findings, the strength and the fatigability, with what their quarter squat looks like, what their hot profile looks like what their running mechanics look like, what all of their hip impingement or hip assessment signs look like. Um, so the profiling uh, pulls together a number of different measures um, to get a really good idea as to where an athlete's injury risk and likelihood of performance sort of improvement are. So around that hip area, has there been any specific, and this is a, pretty horrendous question but is there any specific test that that has been a, a real kind of and you used it before and i'm going to use it again to make it one each but a game changer yeah look i think i think over the journey over the last 10 years um we've learned a lot about sort of 3d hip strength profiles and um one of the one of the consistent deficits um or one of the deficits that seems to be consistently related to lower limb injury are deficits in hip abduction and external rotation strength. And the deficits in, in external rotation strength may be with the hip at neutral, maybe with the hip at 90, um, maybe with the hip at both points in range. And so unless you're measuring them, you don't really have any idea as to whether or not they're there. But once you've once you've found that they're there, the correlation between those sort of deficits in strength and increased femoral adduction and internal rotation on a quarter squat or a landing profile have been surprisingly good. And it, it certainly, it's a foundation of the sort of intervention programs we write is to make sure that we develop symmetrical and balanced hip profiles that correct deficits in hip flexion, abduction, and external rotation strength. They're probably the three um, most critical deficits that we've seen in AFL players over the journey. It's, it's been surprising how some groups that have been prone to, to um, high incidence of hamstring and groin injuries, it's been surprising how strong they've been in hip extension and how weak they've been in hip flexion, external rotation, and abduction. So in terms of them, things you just mentioned, do you think they're applicable to other sports, like a, like a soccer, for instance? Oh, no doubt. No doubt we're seeing very similar trends in the high-level soccer teams that we've sort of worked with to date. Um, seeing 
similar deficits in strength in basketballers as well. Um, so you could, while the thresholds that might be critical in different sports may differ, the pattern of weakness in flexors, abductors, and external rotators seems to be pretty consistent in injured athletes across locomotor sports. And another thing that's been highly talked about um, again on the podcast, but out, out there in the in the real world, um, is asymmetries. How much emphasis do you put on on asymmetries, whether you're testing with Kangatech or, or other um, uh, screening protocols through through the preseason? Yeah, it's a good question. Look, I, I do. We we do look carefully at asymmetries. Anything over ten percent, we start to have a look at. Anything over 20% gets a red flag. Um, if, it's, if it's an acute 10 or 15%, so someone that normally doesn't have an asymmetry who's screening game plus two and game plus three with a 15% with a deficit in hamstring strength, we want to get all over that and see if we can't restore it to where it was last week and understand what it is and why it's there. If it's a chronic deficit in strength, if it's an asymmetry on one side of 15% that's been there forever in a day, we might chip away at trying to make it um, improve to a point where it gets inside that 10% buffer. Um, we will be more passionate about doing that if it's a deficit in a modifiable risk factor that's associated with an injury that that athlete's had a history of. Why ten? Why ten percent, Steve? Is that just you've got to go somewhere? So you've gone ten percent. We go. We yeah. You've got to go somewhere. And look, there's some there's some research de depending upon the injury. There's some research that suggests anything over ten percent is worth looking at with some types of injuries. And there's others that suggest, oh, really, until it gets outside of twenty, it's probably not significant. Which is why we have the software sort of automatically flag tens and twenties. And then once we get over 10, we start looking at injury history, um, total athlete profile, whether it's acute or chronic, all those sorts of things to make sound clinical decisions around what we want to do with it. Have you found that asymmetries are more of an issue with the stronger athletes? So the stronger you get, and if you've got a 10% asymmetry, that's a bigger problem than if you're a weak athlete with 10% asymmetry in, in whatever test that may be? Yeah, look, on. I'm... I'm I know there's some people talking about strong versus weak, and I sort of understand that. But there's sort of um, and and look, there's certainly cases where you know if someone's able to produce 650 newtons of eccentric force on a Nordic drop, and they've got a 10% um, deficit, I'm not I'm not convinced whether that's better or worse than someone who's weak, um, and I'm know that there's some research out or some beginnings of research out there suggesting that it might be more relevant in the stronger people. I've not seen anything with regards to that, really. Um, I, would, I would tend to suggest that it's more about looking at the, the measure that the deficit's in and how that measure is associated with injury risk for that athlete and the history of injury of, of that injury in that athlete. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. No, that's, that's, that's all good. Well, I've kept you for longer than the 45 minutes that I promised, but anyone that wants to know more about you, um, what you're up to, the research you've done previously, the research you're doing at the minute, what's the best place for people to go to contact you, Steve? 
Oh, look, they can um, they can find me at Twitter, I suppose, um, but I'm not much of a tech-savvy sort of Twitter-type person, to tell you the truth. So um, would my email be the best way? If I, if I gave you my email address, how would, how would that be? 100%. Right? Yeah, no, yeah. that's absolutely fine. And if you're happy with that, you can pass your email to me. I've, I've got your email anyway. And if people want to get in touch, they yeah. can get in touch with me uh, on Twitter or Instagram, whatever. And then I can just fire them your email and um, and they can get in touch. Does that sound okay. all right? That's, that's probably a, the best that's way. A, that sounds perfect, Rob. Yep. Lovely. Well, Steve, thank you very much for giving up your time on a Monday evening. Really, really appreciate it. Um, and yeah, thanks for coming on. And uh, no doubt we'll chat soon. No worries, Rob. Thanks very much for your time. I enjoyed it. Thanks, Dave. See you later. Thanks, mate. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to episode 252 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Steve. Great to get Steve on, get his experience in the field, but also as a, as a business founder um, and that process and, and all his experience to, to hopefully bring out into this episode. So before I let you go, I just want to say a big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, I Measure You, Fatigue Science and Omega Wave for sponsoring this episode today. So really appreciate all their support as well as your support for tuning in and listening. So if you haven't pressed subscribe on your chosen podcast player, please do now. So every Thursday morning UK time, you will get an expert in the field on your phone for the commute and it's better better than listening to the radio. So thanks again for your support and I will chat to you soon.